0: The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground.
1: Well, thanks again for coming, everyone. Thought it'd be nice to do a more specific loving-kindness practice, and I'll say a few words, and then it'd be nice to hear from other people as well, questions, and your own reflection, and it's it's a real empowerment, actually, to realize that whatever the mood we have at any particular time, that, you know, because the, the way ignorance, one aspect of ignorance, at least, the way it works is, when I'm in a funk, when I'm irritable, let's say, then the sort of casual ignorance is, that's just who I am. I'm, irrit- I'm irritable, I'm an irritated human being. And there's a kind of wrong idea that that irritation that is there in the mind, in the body, heart, that it's me, as opposed to like a, a visiting weather system that's kind of blown in, but there's nothing fixed about the weather, you know. It's always in its dynamic nature changing becoming whatever's going to be next and that's really empowering to realize that about our moods our attitudes that they're not a fixed entity there's something that blew in because of you know it's lawful causes and conditions whatever things got triggered patterns got established over many years you know being raised in the way we were raised, in our culture and all of that, then when certain triggers arise, then this mood or this attitude shows up, and I'm frustrated, I'm defensive, I'm arrogant and prideful, I'm, you know, whatever. And not all that, right? There are positive, relatively speaking, positive emotions and attitudes, negative, destructive emotions and attitudes. And our job is to not be some helpless, you know, imagine we're helpless, but to gain real skill. And the beginnings of that is just to, one, like almost like a homework assignment, you know, spending the next week where you're honestly and clearly almost like taking an inventory of positive emotions and positive attitudes that just naturally show up. So you're not even trying, you know, to... Put on a good face or have a good attitude. You're just tracking your mood all week long. Oh, look at that. A friendly attitude. An uncontrived friendly attitude is like this it's being known. Or, oh, tranquility. Or, oh, you know, generosity. Oh. There's so many different wholesome moods, attitudes like the capacity to be appreciative, the capacity to be balanced, you know, all the different ways that wholesome humor can arise, That not a humor that's putting anybody down, but just kind of appreciating the strangeness or mystery of all of life or some aspect of life or whatever it might be. So that's one homework assignment, like, oh, I'm not just, you know, constantly inundated with unskillful moods and attitudes, but there are wholesome moods and attitudes too. And then uh, as we get more fluent about these different moods and attitudes coming and going, even within an hour, let alone a day or a week, right? Like how many different versions of Mark have there been today? A lot. And then the more we're fluent, then the more we're able to see that when a particular attitude shows up, that's a lawful arising. And when a particular attitude passes away, is no longer there, that going away was also lawful. Things just don't happen randomly. We live in, whether we understand it or not, whether we're comprehending or reading the lawfulness or not, Wherever we look carefully, we see, in Buddhism, we call it conditionality. But it's basically that there's this underlying principle or truth that things are lawful. It's subtle and it's complex, the the causes and conditions that are supporting the arising of something. Like even the arising of this cool weather we're having finally here. Some of you maybe are out of town on Zoom, you know, that... We've had a really hot September, and finally today, first actual fall day. It's not even that cool, but it feels a little bit closer to what it's supposed to feel in October in this part of the world. And just to understand, that, oh yeah, this is a lawful arising, this weather. Or this frustration is a lawful arising. This despair is a lawful arising. This goodness is a lawful arising. And the more we realize it's lawful, the more that it just sort of begs the question, well, how do I, as a practitioner, let's say, how do I get to participate in the lawfulness of what comes and goes in terms of my mood and attitudes? Like, are all of the supporting causes and conditions just out there somewhere? Or is my own understanding, my own way of relating to my mind and relating to the attitude of mind and what I choose to pay attention to and how I pay attention, does that affect the mood? Well, you know, what the Buddha said, the short answer is absolutely. I mean, you know how it is. It's like we could have a race, like, you know, $100 to the first person who can make themselves sincerely angry. And what we'd all do if you wanted the hundred dollars is you would like scroll through your memories, you know, trying to remember some mental image, some memory of when you were betrayed or whatever. And then your mind, your attention would lock in to that memory, right? And you wouldn't deviate, keep that trigger for anger in mind. That person said that to me. And you keep it in mind, keep it in mind, until you were sincerely angry and you'd raise your hand. And if you're first, you'd get the $100. But it works the other way, too. That's the important thing. right? So we can, just like if we wanted to, we could cultivate envy by, you know, we'd bring somebody to mind and the sweater they wore and how much we like that sweater and how come I can't have a nice sweater like that we could bring in, we could concoct envy and then we'd actually be envious. Or we could probably remember maybe at least one successful thing we did and we could remember it in such a way that we might evoke some pride or some arrogance. Like, I'm the top of the heap and you folks over there are so stupid that you don't get it. You know, we bring to mind people with a different political persuasion and we could inflate and have that sense of like, I'm so much better because I understand the correct way and you idiots over here are wrong, right? So we could evoke that quality. So if we can evoke all those negative, unwholesome attitudes, why can't we do through the same process, why can't we keep really wholesome attitudes in mind? And the thing about when we really get to know in our own subjective experience what loving-kindness is, whatever you want to call it, sometimes it's even better to use a whole different word. That's why, you know, we offer often the word metta, because, you know, in English we'll use the word love for I love hamburgers, you know. So we use that word in all kinds of different ways. So we don't really, in, in English, have a word for love that's really about uh, not love with attachment, but this, you know, it sounds strange to say spiritual love. It sounds a little clinical or, I don't know, not something we're that interested in, <laughs> spiritual love, right? But metta is something we should actually be interested in because it feels good. And here's the kicker, it's really functional. You know, in the Buddhist way of thinking about these Brahma-viharas is the poly phrase, divine abodes. These are the place we should abide, the four emotions, the four attitudes we should abide with. And that's really all the four, the only four emotions we need. And the basic one is that basic goodness of the heart, goodwill or friendliness, metta, loving-kindness. So that's those are the ways we translate that word, metta. And then that basic goodness, when what's showing up for me is my own or somebody else's suffering, it just naturally morphs to what we call compassion. And compassion is different than empathy. It's related, but it's different. Because empathy is a kind of sympathetic resonating. So you're suffering and then I, I know you, and I know that you're suffering, and then I'm kind of sympathetically resonating, like I'm kind of feeling your pain. And that you might like that, or you may not like that, but I'm not really in a position to help you because I'm now burdened by your suffering. And we get burnt out with empathy. Compassion gives us some immunity to that problem of empathy, We're still sensitive, we're still aware, we need the connection, we need to sense that you're suffering. And it could be our own suffering, by the way, right? We need to sense the suffering, but the mind is really attending. What the mind is keeping in mind is, I care about your suffering. I wish for you ease with these difficult conditions. And if there's something I can do to support that ease, for you with those difficult conditions, or me with these difficult conditions I'm facing. I'm gonna do it, because I care. But that's an uplifting emotion. Compassion is a beautiful, resonant, uplifting emotion. It's not a depleting emotion. Like uh, pity, where we're feeling burdened by people suffering. As if we were to go up to them. You know, I joke sometimes and say, you know, we go up to a good friend who's in the hospital or on their deathbed, and we say to them, you know, your suffering is really bothering me. You need to get better. I can't stand how unpleasant this is. We don't say that, but that's kind of where we can be sometimes. And if we, and when we're there, we should be honest about it, and honest that that's not spiritual love, that's not metta. That's attachment that might masquerade as compassion, but it's, it's not really compassion, because we're attached and we're afraid of the suffering that's there in the world, in our own heart and in other people's lives at times. And when that basic goodness of natta runs into something beautiful, then we call it mudita, appreciative joy, or your happiness, your success, even simple things. We see somebody who really looks put put together, and instead of envy, we like, Oh, you know, you seem like you got your act together today, you know. I don't I don't know the whole truth, but you just look good. You look like you, you're feeling good and you're looking good. And whatever that simple happiness that I'm imagining you're having, may it continue, may it increase, may it never end. Your happiness, whatever I'm sensing over here, that makes me happy. Uh, Dalai Lama says it like increases the odds for happiness by whatever the population on the planet is now, 8 billion to what? Right? But Because anybody's well-being, even simple well-being, like sipping their favorite Starbucks, mochaccino, whatever, <laughs> you know, you seem to be enjoying that. May that simple experience of happiness, of sense, pleasure, May that happiness continue, increase, and never end. Now, we know it's not going to continue and increase and never end. But the wish is still that wish. And that wish is a beautiful wish. It's not it. We don't have to imagine that we're ignorant and that we think, somehow my wish is going to somehow shape the multitude of causes and conditions and you're only going to forever drink (laughs) mochaccinas or whatever they are, you know, and be happy about it. We know better. But when you actually have that wish for someone's well-being and their continued well-being and even their increased well-being, you'll see, when you look, that that wish is a beautiful thing. And, and this equanimity is there all along, right? That's the fourth quality. So we have basic goodness, which is metta, compassion, karuna is the Pali word, Appreciative joy, sometimes called sympathetic joy or gladness. And the Pali word is mudita. And then upekka is equanimity. It's a, here it's a radiant balance. It's nice, isn't it, to think of equanimity as a kind of love. Because again, we think, when we hear the word equanimity, we think of kind of flat, cool, nothing matters. We tend to, in English, until we kind of reframe it with our Buddhist practice, and especially with our own experience of equanimity, subjective, actual experience of equanimity, we need to reform it. We really need to sense equanimity as a beautiful quality of mind, state of mind, attitude of mind. It has a kind of radiant... So I use often the word ease for me with... uh, when I want to sense that radiant balance. May you be at ease. It's like ease, the one word, is short for me, like ease no matter the conditions. Ease with life as it actually is, which is uncertain and vulnerable, right? Where anything can happen, really, for us humans, or all living beings for that matter. May we all be at ease with conditions as they are. Dynamic, changing, uncertain, ungovernable. Right? Isn't that true about the conditions in our life? I mean, we get to sort of participate, but the multitude of other causes and conditions also get to author what happens for us. Right? And so there's this built-in ungovernableness of life. So equanimity is, may we be at ease, let me really aspire, can we all align with uncertainty and vulnerability and, and find a freedom in not having to be in denial? That's part of what makes equanimity this fourth kind of love. And it's like, I don't have to be in denial. I can actually align with reality as it is uncertain, vulnerable, ungovernable, unreliable, wild, truly really wild. We sense that, you know, with the storms, you know, when weather, or you if you've ever been by the ocean when there's really big surf, they're just like, oh my God. Life, nature, the world, there's just so much power moving all the time. But we, you know, we stay in our bubble. And what is our bubble? It's our thoughts about things, you know. We create bubbles through our own thinking processes. And when we just even come into the body, we just feel so much. It's so alive. The energy of the body, the energy of everything, the mind, the moment, conditions. So this goodness of heart is really a way in. It's not a way, because, you know, there's a shadow to these four divine abodes, which has to do with, uh, you know, all the ways that our idea of loving kindness can be part of creating a bubble. You know, people we, and we're those people, of course, that are overly sentimental. You know, and they're really into kind of merging and thoughts about unification and oneness and love. And, and even uh, in different religious traditions, including Buddhism, there can be uh, people who are overly devotional. And they're just like, the Buddha's so great. And, uh, but it's really their idea that they're loving. Right. They're, they have an idea, mental image, mental idea and then they love it. And he could do it for you know could be a politician, you know, could be the Buddha, could be Jesus Christ, could be Muhammad, it could be anybody. But it's still a, a little bit of a bubble. So this is what I really, I find so trustworthy about how the Buddha talks about metta love, spiritual love is that it's this very functional way of being, it's very much natural and uncontrived. But just because it's natural it's uncontrived doesn't mean we can't train ourselves to recognize it and to abide in it. Because remember, the training isn't so much about... We're not concocting loving-kindness. We're creating an equal force as a counterweight to the habits in our mind to be aversive and afraid and anxious, right? All of those different expressions of aversion, which is the opposite of loving kindness. And because, you know, just as an animal that has relied on aversion and fear to survive and to mate and, you know, get through the next day, it's just a big part of our conditioning. So when we take on a training like we did tonight during the guided sit. don't think of it as like, oh, that's so weird that you have to like bring somebody in mind and repeat these phrases or however you want to do it. And there are other ways to do it, you know, but remember what we're doing is we're being honest. We've been paying attention and we realize how often I'm defensive, I'm irritable, I'm frustrated, I'm angry, I'm fearful. I'm anxious. These different expressions of not love. Okay. So I need to, I need to sort of build some momentum. I need to create this artificial thing I'm calling loving kindness meditation, where I'm going to practice keeping in mind this other, you know, sphere of attitude, this other category of attitudes of loving kindness. So how can I do it? Well, I can bring my cat to mind. I can remember holding my cat next to my chest. And I can remember when I had that mental image, that memory, I can remember, oh yeah. Because the memory of me holding my cat for a few moments when he lets me, that love is pretty pure. And when I remember that love, that love isn't back wherever, you know, two days ago or earlier today. That love is right now. Right. So we, we create a little wormhole to the authentic, actual generosity of the heart. Because right then and there, as I'm remembering my friend or my benefactor, somebody who was really there for me in my life, I had this great fifth grade teacher. He actually came here. He he lives in Iowa after, you know, many, many years, 50 years or whatever it was. But, uh, yeah, he just kind of took me under his wing and saw something in me that helped me see something in me that made me feel good about life and myself and and about yeah, just goodness in general. And uh, so, you know, I bring him to mind or some of my teachers, my Dharma teachers to mind. And that love is pretty pure. I, I may not even know that much about their personal lives, but I know I so appreciative of them and i just naturally wholeheartedly wish them well may wisdom and love protect you it's like that's not a stretch at all for those whoever they are for each of us those easy people but when we bring them to mind that love actually that we feel it's not actually about them we just use them to arouse it because you'll see when you feel that like when i bring my cat to mind and Feel that purity of love. Then when I'm feeling that purity of love, I realize, yeah, I love the cat, but it's not, it's not just about the cat. It's a capacity of this mind, this heart, to be loving in that unconditioned way, that generous way. And we actually, it has a felt sense of upwelling. That's how you can get to know that spiritual love. It's not like a business relationship, like, Some of our partnerships with a a loved one, you know, if you have a a dear friend or a, a lover or whatever, you're married, there may be some of that pure, hopefully, some of that pure friendliness, but a lot of it is a bit like business, you know, like I'll take care of you and you take care of me, but let's be real, my taking care of you is based on you taking care of me. And that doesn't mean we're sort of doing the ledger every evening. But generally speaking, there's this sense of, you know, we're in this together. You know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. You do the dishes, I'll do the garbage. You know, and there's just this reciprocity, much like business relationships. Remember, business isn't bad. It's just more on the survival level. I'll laugh at your jokes, you laugh at my jokes. (laughs) or whatever, deals we make with our good friends and our partners. And that's one thing, but there's something we can aspire to that's beyond that, and it's really not about the cat or about my Dharma teachers who I care about and wish well for. We really want to see that it's about the love itself. That is such a beautiful refuge, And this is really about the path, because one way to talk about the path, it may seem a little weird to say it this way, but we're going from a mind that is fixated on the objects of our experience, the meal we had tonight, our thought about what tomorrow is going to bring, and that's what life is about. And... And our Dharma practice is realizing what, what our real refuge is, what our real orientation should be around, is how we're relating to those objects, not the obje- objects themselves. That in a way, who and what we are is the way we are relating. So it's not that it's not about the object that we're relating to, but what's more important is how we're relating, how we're knowing, how we're being sensitive. That's what's really... Are we being sensitive in a way that's controlling and fear, fear-based? fear Or are we relating to whatever we're relating to with love? And that is a game-changer when we realize what that's about because then you see the objects, the specific... Um, Circumstances and conditions of my life are become less and less important. And what becomes more and more relevant is how I'm relating. But how I'm relating isn't dependent on the particular conditions. I can be loving no matter the conditions. We see people who are so suffused with love, even in miserable conditions you know, people on their deathbeds in a lot of pain, but they're just in a very generous, loving place. Not always, of course, right? And you see people who have so much material abundance that their hearts are so tight and narrow and closed down. So how we relate, and this is a great thing about... Um, Yeah, just seeing people with less um, material abundance and how it's not a clear... I mean, obviously, we wouldn't wish poverty or illness or pain on anyone, but there are people who are dealing with challenging conditions who are finding ways to be relating to those challenging conditions that are quite uplifting and liberating. And there are people who have very... Outwardly fortunate conditions who are relating to those fortunate conditions in very tight and narrow ways, and they're miserable. And we can check this out because it's not about like believing what I've just said and just start with this attitude of friendliness, contentedness, generosity. Just realize that any, there's there's a way in any moment to be generous. There's always a way to be generous. Just like there's always a way to be stingy. It's like, you know, even when my partner and I, we have a really luxurious bed now because we've bought a new mattress and we got nice blankets and nice sheets and we, we had our bed, bedroom renovated a few years back and have a nice window and... You know, good airflow. And I mean, it's like a comfortable place. And, uh, but you know, you can get stingy about like, who's got more blankets or, you have my pillow. (laughs) I'm talking about myself, not my partner. (laughs) It's like, this is my pillow. What are you doing? (laughs) Give me back my pillow. (laughs) You know, because I like try to make everything perfect and then we get attached to having it just the way we want it, you know? And uh, this is the little line of the bed, you know? <laughs> it's like, this is my side. <laughs> you know, it's like, what's that cat doing on my side? That's where my legs go. You know, all these little things we could be stingy about. And that, they all, you know, it's just a functional question to ask, like, oh, well, how's that working for me? It's not about, like, in some legalistic sense, do I have rights to be frustrated? It's like, yeah, we may have the right to create a lawsuit in our heart, you know. But that doesn't mean we'll be happy making that lawsuit. That's the functional question, like, how is that working for me? Yeah, politics in the United States seems very off these days, right? But, so should I be, like, freaking out? Like, how's that working for me? I mean, the question is, is there something I can do to make things better? Well, then let's do that. Or, no, given, you know, my situation, there's really nothing at this moment for me to do right now. Or, you know, relatively speaking. But in either case, whether I'm going to do something and get involved or I'm not going to do something... Why be in an aversive state, a fear-based state? Who does that benefit? Who is that helping? Is there a way to be friendly? Is there a way to be loving? Is there a way to be compassionate and tender and forgiving and patient? And remember, love can be quite fierce. Compassion can be quite fierce. Love is not a feeble thing. We think you know we got to be angry to to kind of get something done, but we haven't actually checked that out. Like one, what are the kind? The Buddha he equates uh, anger, you know, relying on anger to get things done, as a wildfire. Like we might clear the field, but the fire just keeps burning. You know, it takes everything down because nobody controls it, and we see that like when we're angry. The easiest thing to do when we're angry is to get angry at other stuff. And if we're mindful when we're angry, we'll really catch that. It's like like the anger is looking for the next thing to burn down. So it's not even about what we were initially upset about. We're starting to look for other things to be angry about. Have you caught yourself doing that? Same thing when we're lustful and really like liking nice stuff. And we, we want to look at, we want to bring to mind other nice stuff that I could like and want and crave. Because that's the nature. They're like, uh, very much like a drug. Greed and aversion are very much like a drug. We do get an initial hit when I'm all my mind is all wrapped up with desire or all wrapped up with anger. But then it needs more. And then it needs more. And then it needs more. And then eventually we feel really strung out burnt out by it and the antidote is living with these four beautiful emotions these four divine abodes as they're called of loving kindness compassion appreciative joy and equanimity and it just starts simple i'll just read this i've read this before some of you've heard it some of you know kendrick a long long time community member and she, this is from Gwendolyn Brooks, who was a well-known uh, poet and and writer back in the 40s and 50s. I think maybe she might have been the first uh, black woman to win the Pulitzer Prize back then. She's unusual back in the early 50s, I think, when she won it. And the book here is Maud Martha. But it, it's just a, a beautiful, simple example of somebody realizing, oh, yeah, this heart has the capacity for real goodness. Uncontrived, I'm, I'm not doing it. The goodness that we're sensing, that we're feeling, that upwelling of goodness, it's just there to be recognized. So here's the little passage. Go home to your children, she urged, to your wife or husband. And she opened the trap. The mouse vanished. Suddenly, she was conscious of a new cleanness in her. A wide air walked in her. A life had blundered its way into her power, and it had been hers to preserve or destroy. She had not destroyed. In the center of that simple restraint was creation. She had created a piece of life. It was wonderful. Why, she thought, as her height doubled. Why, I'm good. I'm good. She ironed her aprons her back was straight, her eyes were mild and soft with a godlike loving kindness. I mean, it's such a, we can kind of imagine our own version of that when we just saw in that very uncontrived way, hopefully we have examples of this, where we were just good. We said a really kind thing we didn't have to say at just the right time, at just the right way, and we impacted another person's life that day. And we felt really good about it. Because we noticed like there was that opportunity for goodness to arise and it arose and it set good emotion. And that person feeling good, right? these kind of ripples, just like hatred and <laughs> and being mean-spirited, also has ripples. You know, when we're around hateful people, we tend to sympathetically resonate and start to get into it, too. It matters. These seeds that we plant in our own mind and heart, but also in our wider worlds, the communities that we're part of. So maybe I'll leave it there. That leaves us a little bit more than 15 minutes. It'd be nice to hear from each other. Those of you online, of course, can just raise your digital hand, and if you don't know how to do that, just uh, unmute yourself and then I can put a microphone next to my computer speaker here, and everybody in the room will be able to hear you. It'd be nice to realize that all of you 17 or so people online exist and have a voice. So, And then those of you in the room, maybe I'd invite you, if you don't mind, to come. If it's short, I can just repeat your comment. But it's nice for people online to hear your voice. You can sit here. I'll hand you the mic for the Zoom, and that way they'll hear you. I won't put the camera on you because we're recording, but they'll hear your voice. Yeah, so what experiences of that natural, uncontrived capacity for goodness that have you seen? Because it's, these testimonials are contagious and be nice to hear some. What gets in the way? How can you, how have you learned to keep the attitude of friendliness, kindness, and mind? Especially in daily life, what is what is it that you learn to keep it in mind? Yeah, and of course, any questions about the practice we did tonight that come to mind? Yeah, do you want to come up front? Ken? Yeah, I a
0: long question. I would like to relate, if you would, the relationship between the Brahma Viharis or a mind state of loving kindness with the present moment. Because I find myself kind of Having some facility with sitting in loving states, but sometimes I'll be blissed out, sort of. I won't be maybe tracking what's happening in the moment is. So I get I get mixed
1: up a little. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's actually a really important question. I was kind of going there earlier in the talk, and then I, I think I must have gotten sidetracked. And we all have different temperaments. And you know, I know Anne. Uh, pretty well because Anne's been around for a long time and uh, you know we have different minds and some minds are really good you know the imaginative part of the mind is really powerful and uh, so it's really important like that you ask that question Anne because you want to get very interested like uh, the difference between using mental images and even felt yeah Felt sense, right? You want, cause, uh, here's the, the real trick. Love is more about what's not there than what is there. So we use what is there, like the felt sense and the, uh, and the mental images first. Mental image would be grosser and then the felt sense would be subtler. But, but they're all stepping stones to what is ultimately Empty of aversion, empty of fear, empty of anxiety. So that's actually, when when loving kindness is in its most exalted state, it's really mostly about what's not there. We're realizing this mind that is empty of fear and aversion.
0: So would you say that when I'm really engaged in the world without fear and aversion, I'm, I'm not actually aware that I'm probably in a state of metta. Like, there's, like when you're
1: really in it, it, you're not aware. Yeah, but, you know, like, this is the nice thing. I, I think Gwendolyn Brooks must have understood something deep about metta, spiritual love, because it just, even though she's just describing such an ordinary thing, but, you know, it's like... Um, her eyes were mild. Like, it, it, it was there was something like uh, uncontrived and uh, natural. You know, it wasn't like, uh, like in Mudita, you know, the uh, near enemy of Mudita, because it looks like appreciative joy is exuberance, right? And it's like when we have a lot of that energy of love, love doesn't need to do anything, but it's also not afraid to do anything. It's really in this clean, potential state, and I think Gwendolyn Brooks even uses that word, that's the word I was going to find here, What did she say, ah, she was conscious, suddenly she was conscious of a new cleanness in her, and cleanness is sort of the absence of aversion, it's like something's different, what's different? Oh, it's not what's here, it's what's not here, something has gone away this heart, the space of this moment, is empty of a fear and aversion. And we can learn to keep that in mind, just like we can learn to keep in mind, I don't have a toothache. It wouldn't be easy, but we could train our mind all day long to keep in mind like, like when you've been sick, like I've, I had a bad sinus, it's getting a little better now, sinus uh, pressure here. I had it really bad in August and now it came back again. It's getting better, thankfully. Um, and then when it goes away, it's like, those first hours when it's gone away, it's like, I'm so happy it's gone away. But then, like, within 12 hours, it's like you're oblivious to that. You had a sinus headache, you know. And it's like, no, it's still nice that it's not there. But we don't remember that it's not there.
0: But there's that clean taste, like that clean smell, that when you breathe, that like. Blocks. Like that's what i mean
1: by like kind of like but it is you you're right it's something it just, but but the more we can get that the something is the absence the closer we're getting the more stable and deep and transforming the experience of love is. Yeah. That's why i really appreciate that about because there is this whole shadow that I talked briefly about of making love into a thing. Just like in Buddhism, making Buddha nature into a thing, then the ego will want that thing. If we make love into a thing, then the ego's going to want that love, want to be that love. And so, and then it gets stinky, right? So it's like, it's important, but you're right, We you're going to trust the felt sense, but... The way we use it is gross to subtle. The more subtle the felt sense is, the more trustworthy it is. Until it's almost like not there, and then we trust that. You know, like like you said just a couple of minutes ago, almost like it's not there at all. And there's like there's different stories about like an awakened one. Like the awakening process is mostly when the mind goes from being ignorant to being less ignorant. That's what really makes a splash. That's what gets the mind's attention. But once the mind has been free of greed, hatred, and delusion, does it notice that it's free Free to greed, hatred, and delusion? Well, sure, when we go from a mind contaminated and overwhelmed by greed, hatred, and delusion, to having less and less, we know each of those steps because the contrast really stands out. It's like putting a heavy backpack down. Oh, that's nice. But once there's no backpack on, after a while, being awakened, having a mind free of grasping, free of greed, hatred, and delusion, it's just ordinary. And I think that's what you were maybe pointing to in your comment.
0: Yeah, and I think people that are dying, because it's so elusive, it might not be able to feel it, the trust of the empty.
1: Yeah. Well, some people who have a gradual entry to dying, they might get some real practice. There's some newer research um, in the whole hospice world. I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, but just sort of rethinking what the mind does. And uh, and they've really equated the dying process to people who have near-death experiences. A doctor, an MD, was originally in Buffalo, I don't know, that he was a hospice doctor. And he looked a lot at... Uh, Maybe Eric remembers. Do you know who that doctor is, Eric? But anyway, he uh, he started, you know, just talking to families and and these people near death. Um, that they used to, they start having these interesting dreams, you know, and uh, that's what they thought they were dreams. And my dad had one of these dreams when he was near death, uh, staying with us, Wynn and me, at our house, and uh, and we just think of, well, they're just having a strange dream, you know. But it's really a near death, when you really have, have the person do their best to describe it, it really corresponds to people who report these near death experiences because they were in a terrible auto accident or whatever the cause might be, where they're learning to, the mind is detethering from the physical body, right? And they come back and they go back and forth and they're really learning how to be, when they return to the body, they can, like those of us who are around them, feels like a sacred moment because that person is somehow manifesting something that we don't quite understand, but we're very attracted to because it seems so real and helpful. And what basically is, like, there's a mind that's not attached to the body because they're learning how to not be attached to the physical life, right? It, not everyone, right? It's This would be a more unusual, someone who's got some... Uh, uh, some spiritual tendencies already developed, and they're having one of those more graceful you know passings you know where they have some clarity and not too much pain and all that yeah thanks Jan who'd like to go next anybody online or yeah Robert you want to come up so people can hear you and then we'll go to Ashley next And Robert here his friend about the um
0: I heard a word that you said today, and that Femi, who was also teaching this in the past week or so, uh, which is pride. And um, when I heard Femi talk about it, and as I hear you talk about it this evening, it's significant to me because as a child, I, oh, I got that word thrown at me a lot, and I didn't know what it meant, and a 7 eight-year-old child doesn't know what that means, but I seem to make a connection with it when Femi used it in his talk and you just used it as well. I've never heard it in Buddhist faith that much. And um, it's hard for me to explain. I have to explore it a little more to understand the depth of it uh, for me. But it's really significant for me to hear that in these teachings.
1: Yeah, thanks Robert. Yeah, I'm wondering if you know, a more common Buddhist version of that word pride, right? That's the word you said? Yeah. Uh, would be conceit. And, you know, it's... But we, we immediately have such a negative connotation. I mean, usually, you know, conceit is a cause for constriction in our mind. Pride is a cause. But it's a very natural thing that's going to be there, even with some deep insight, deep awakening, but not whole awakening, conceit continues, because it's sort of like a, a deep, deep pattern of how the mind organizes, the thinking mind, the conceiving mind organizes experience around a sense of self. And so it's it's like to be expected. And we want to have that understanding that we want to stay open that conceit, pride can ultimately be abandoned. But we have to first learn to see conceit, to see pride as a natural arising for the mind. You know, just like when a child um, learns, you know, even a little child learns to walk. I don't know if you've been around a little kid when they're learning to walk or any kind of skill. And then they, they start to master it. And you just see, even in, in a child that hasn't mastered language, something's happened. Like... They feel this upliftment like, I can do this, you know. But it's, it's this conceit like mastering, there's a sense of a somebody mastering life, right? And there's, it kind of, it's an organizing principle for the organism. And we want to really understand it in that way. And it's like, and it helps us understand with humility, the nth degree of awakening, which is the mind still can function in this sort of relative world where we use personal pronouns, but it isn't confused by conceit and pride. You know, it might be that uh, we could make the Buddha blush by heaping praise on him or something like that, or reminding him of You know, 2,600 years later, your teachings are still, you know, and get the Buddha to sort of have an awkward moment of pride or something like that. But the point wouldn't be that that wouldn't happen, but the mind would misunderstand whatever that reflexive emotion might be in them, that he wouldn't misunderstand it. That's what happens sometimes, you know. Because I noticed like when praise would come my way for a long time, it was like I had this sort of neurotic defensiveness like, no, 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 no. you know. And then finally, I mean, several people had to tell me like, it's a little weird, <laughs> you know, whatever. You know, why are you afraid? And then and then I realized I didn't really know how to let pride or praise, how to let it move through. We have to just let it in. And let the personality respond to it without being embarrassed by whatever that response is. And I find like, that's really hard practice, and good practice. Okay, Ashley, you want to unmute yourself? We'd love to hear what you have to say, and this would be the last comment.
0: Aye, sure. Uh, thank you for teaching tonight.
1: You're right, welcome. One second, Ashley. I'm going to move them. Okay, now you can go.
0: Okay. Can you hear me all right now?
1: Yep, we hear you well. All right,
0: perfect. Um, I was really interested in what you said about sentimentality and it brought to mind, you know, sometimes I'll, I guess, just consciously bring to mind a quote or something a teacher has said when I'm experiencing life. So for instance, like, Sometimes during walking meditation, I'll think about what Thich Nhat Hanh says about, you know, we are earth walking on earth. And I'm curious, and I'll explore this for myself, but also curious to get your thoughts on like, when is that being sentimental and kind of prevents us from experiencing the walking meditation as it is right now? versus when does that help prime the mind, and um, yeah, I don't, hopefully you get the gist of my question.
1: Yeah, it's an excellent question, and it really, it's related to what Anne was talking about, and uh, it's also related to the question, what is helpful or wise thought, because there are thoughts like that gatha, is a a word that's used in Buddhism and certain traditions that just means like a, a useful little wisdom phrase that we bring up, like earth walking on earth, that Ashley mentioned from the wonderful teacher Thich Nhat Hanh. Um, there are thoughts that can lead us into mental proliferation, which we would consider unskillful thoughts. Like even a beautiful thought like that, if I misuse that thought, I could spend hours just lost in thought about Earth walking on Earth and what does that mean. And But I'm not really getting deep and I'm not having insight. I'm just kind of mental proliferation, thoughts leading to more thoughts. And because there's a there can be a kind of hunger in our thoughts where we're looking for the thought that will give us a jolt of emotional energy but then it fades, and then we need another thought. And we're kind of, just like when we scroll through the Internet, we can do it in our own mind, trying to just feed a hungry beast that is never satisfied. But there's also ways to use thoughts that help drop the mind in. And this this is what I meant from uh, what Anne was saying and we were talking about together, where we go from thought to feeling, the feeling that's here, the underlying feeling, and then once we're in the felt sense, then going from gross to subtle. Because we're really, what we're doing in spiritual practice is we're learning how to put everything down. Because we don't actually know how to relate to this manifest world until we learn how to let it all go. So we go from gross to subtle, not because emptiness or subtle or putting it all down is the end all. It actually tells us how to inhabit this world that we live in, this relational world. So that's how you use it, Ashley. It's like when you say earth walking on earth, notice how you can be, that phrase, that beautiful little phrase, can be used to cut through a lot of sort of fixations of the mind and really the mind can drop into a more simple place. But never presume that the more simple place is the end. Right? We want to really cultivate a taste for, like, this is simple, this is peaceful. Could it be more simple, more peaceful? That's not greed. That's a really wholesome interest. That's a spiritual interest. This is really tranquil. This is really peaceful. Could it be more peaceful, more tranquil? Because we follow that thread until there's no thread to follow. That's the path. Or one way to talk about the path. Anyway, we're a little over. It's really nice to be with the Wednesday night community. Good to be here. Wish you all well. Shelly will be back next week. Um, there's a half-day retreat on Saturday. Join in for that if you want. And, uh, all, lots else coming up. I think in a week or so, we'll have the registration. Shelley and I will be leading the year-end retreat. We'll have people at the retreat center. Hopefully about 30 people or so practicing here at the retreat center. In the, I mean, the city center in Minneapolis will close the city center to all the other programs and people online. So uh, for 30, this will be our 31st annual year-end retreat. Consider joining in the 26th of December in the evening through 12 noon on the 31st.
0: This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity.
1: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.